The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Fine, if that's the way you feel, Velma said, her anger suddenly flaring. I just can't believe you're treating me like this. She whirled and was out the door, and then turned saying nothing more, giving Ronnie a look he would never forget. It was a mean, mean look. He later recalled real angry, unlike anything I've ever seen before. As Ronnie watched his mother drive away, he was overcome by guilt. He had promised her that she always could count on him, and now he had turned her away. From Death Sentence, The True Story of Velma Barfield's Life, Crimes, and Execution by Jerry Bledsoe. Welcome back, Murder Bookies. I'm your host, Jill. This is episode 64, Poisoning the Waterhole, the second of my trilogy on death sentence, the story of Velma Barfield's life, crimes, and execution by Jerry Bledsoe. The twist and turns of this case is like a roller coaster ride. And a shout out to all the dads out there. Happy Father's Day. All right. A few exciting developments I want to share with you. I am on Patreon, so now you can support the podcast and better join me on a Zoom the first Thursday of each month, 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we'll talk about the books, the cases, new developments, updates, and you can help me pick the books I'll feature on the podcast. Fun, it is where we can discuss, share, and delve deeper. So please join me on Patreon. The link is www.patreon.com backslash Murder Shelf Book Club. And it's also found on my blog. So I am excited to be sharing this with you. Oh, and if some huge break in true crime comes, because it's been happening like almost weekly, we will do a live Zoom whenever that may be. All right. So in our previous episode, 63. We learned how Velma Bullard Burke Barfield was arrested for the murder of her fiance, Stuart Taylor, blowing the minds of her children, Ronnie and Kim. We delved into her abusive childhood, her marriage at 17 to Thomas Burke, building a family, Velma, the consummate class mother. We also saw Velma descend into drug addiction, her doctor shopping, and overdosing regularly. We learned how she lost two husbands and her parents as tragedy pummeled her over and over again. Manipulating, creating situations where Velma can play the victim, she totally stresses out her kids. After a stint in prison for passing forged checks, Velma begins caring for the elderly couple Montgomery and Dolly Edwards, and after their deaths, John Henry Lee and his wife Record. And sadly, in June 1977, John Henry became seriously ill with gastritis, weakened, and dying after several weeks of suffering. So picking up from where we left off, in September, Recordly became ill with stomach cramping, and Velma notified her daughter, Margie Lee Pittman, saying she was taking her mother to the hospital. But by now, Velma wanted more time with Stuart. She left Recordly's employment because the woman annoyed the daylights out of her. Jerry Bledsoe writes, quote, had Velma become concerned that she was pushing her luck and might be caught? Later, she would never admit to poisoning Record Lee. At the time, she said she quit because she found staying with others too confining, end quote. So Velma rented and moved into the Rowan Trailer Park and began working at United Care, a nursing home where daughter-in-law Joanna worked. And then came the big announcement. Velma was sporting a new diamond engagement ring on her hand. She and Stuart just had to wait for his divorce to be finalized. Ronnie, as usual, was concerned. Did Stuart know about Velma's pills, a question that ticked off Velma? Did she love Stuart, 
with Velma assuring him that she did. But again later, Velma would admit, quote, deep down inside, I never really cared for him. I never felt close to him at all. I can't comprehend why I wanted to be with him. Sometimes we're just lonely, end quote. Around 5 p.m. one afternoon, early November 1977, the Lumberton Police Department received a call about an assault in the Rowan trailer park. Failing to answer her door, Stewart entered, finding Velma in her underwear, feet and hands bound with duct tape, a piece pressed across her mouth. Detective Benson Phillips arrived to take the report from a sobbing Velma. Her story. Going into the bathroom, a man lassoed a towel around her neck, tying her up. She begged him not to hurt her and eventually passed out. Ah, uh, had he hit her or choked her or tried to strangle her? No, no, he had not. Detective Phillips' search revealed nothing amiss, no sign of forced entry. Well, maybe he used an extra key from an earlier tenant, Velma suggested. But this makes no sense. Why would someone lurk inside a trailer, then tie her up, and do her no harm, not stealing anything, and leave? Much more likely scenario, she tied herself up, the drama queen at work. Then Stewart announced that Velma would not spend another night in that trailer and she was going home with him. As the theory clicked in the detective's mind, drama, 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 Velma's M.O. This new living arrangement shocked Ronnie and Kimmy. Their mother living with a man out of wedlock? What would the Pentecostal Holiness Church think? The battling, breaking up, and getting back together cycle began almost at once. It hit critical mass when Stewart found a letter from a friend of Velma's, who she met while in prison. Ah, yeah, that prison thing, something she had neglected to mention to Stewart. Well, Velma explained she was ashamed. She didn't want anyone to know. And why was he snooping in her things? And he was snooping, and he was drinking as Velma tried to divert the subject, totally failing. Stewart felt this was his house, and he had a right to know who he was marrying. He's absolutely right. From this point onward, every time they argued, Stuart threw prison in Velma's face. In December, Stuart discovered forged checks written by Velma to pay for her pills. Utterly furious, he demanded repayment. And if she didn't, he'd turn her into the police. His daughter Alice would later confirm that Stuart canceled their wedding. A month later, another huge fight erupted, with Velma asking to move in with Ronnie and Joanna. Concerned about his and Joanna's own struggles, Ronnie told a completely stunned Velma, no, no, she could not move in with them. He would help her find a place, but she was not moving in with him and Joanna. Velma shot mean, ugly daggers out of her eyes at him, an expression Ronnie had never seen before. This time, her manipulation of her son failed, and Velma Barfield didn't like it one bit. Temporarily living with a reluctant Kim, on January 31st, Stuart and Velma stopped by to visit daughter Alice and her newborn son, William Norman Storms IV. Alice was surprised to see Velma because she thought they'd broken up for good. A pleasant visit, Alice shared some old family photos and they were reminiscing. Later, after dinner, Stuart was taking Velma to an evangelical crusade by Rex Humbard in Fayetteville. They weren't at the revival long when Stuart began to feel sick. Maybe it was something he ate. All right, I guarantee you it was something he ate. All right, he insisted that Velma stay and enjoy the service. He'd go lie down in his truck. By the time it was over, Velma had to drive home. Stuart was in such pain and vomiting. Around 2.30 a.m., Velma called and woke Alice out of his sound sleep. Sorry to disturb her and the new baby and all, but Stuart was very sick and Alice advised her to get him to the doctor's office if he got any worse, which was no easy task because Stuart hated doctors. The next day, Stuart was no better, still refusing doctors. Thursday. Worse, now he was in the emergency room with Velma, Stuart complaining of pains in his chest, stomach, and arms. He was dehydrated with low blood pressure. Velma called Alice from the hospital. Three hours later, the diagnosis. Stewart had gastritis, probably triggered by his drinking. He'd been given fluids and Mylanta, and Velma could take him home to rest. Friday. 
Alice learned her dad was doing better, talking and sitting up. He'd gone to the bathroom by himself, and he was talking about eating his absolute favorite oyster stew, which I have to confess I had never heard of before. So I learned so much reading with you. It's like a clam chowder, but with oysters. So Alice knew he was recovering if he wanted oyster stew, and Velma was going to make it for him. 8 p.m. Friday night. Total reversal. Stuart needed an ambulance. In a bed covered with feces, an incoherent Stuart thrashed, unable to even tell the ambulance attendant, John McPherson, what was ailing him. Restraining him, his blood pressure was dangerously low and dropping. Racing to the hospital, Stuart died a few hours later. Stuart's children were shocked. Their dad was 56 years old. He had never been sick. He was strong as a bull. What happened? And Dr. Jordan was equally puzzled and suggested an autopsy with Velma agreeing. So how many mysterious deaths requiring an autopsy have you been involved with, murder bookies? Me? None. And this has got to be the third or fourth for Velma. Interesting, huh? Sunday morning, 5.30 a.m. The phone rang at the home of the Lumberton police detective, Benson Phillips. A woman was crying hysterically. Maybe she was drunk. Trying to calm her, he managed to figure out she was reporting a murder and she knew who did it, saying, quote, somebody's got to stop her, end quote. But she wouldn't give Detective Phillips any other information. So thinking she was a crackpot, he said to call back and he'd be in the office by 8 a.m. Now at work, Phillips found no reports of any homicides. But this woman called back, calmer this time. It took a lot of effort, but the detective began to pry loose some details. Velma Barfield had killed her boyfriend, just like she killed her own mother. The caller had no proof, but there were probably others too. Way too many people around Velma Barfield had died, like an elderly couple. Phillips wanted to know how she knew this. Quote, because she said, Velma is my sister, end quote. While Detective Phillips was speaking with Velma's sister, Velma was at the funeral home, arms around Alice, comforting her that her dad was, quote, in a far better place, end quote. All the family were so moved by the tender care Velma had taken of their father and the beautiful wreath she sent, offering care even as she grieved the man she loved. Stuart was buried at the cemetery of Great Marsh Baptist Church, not far from his Aunt Dolly Edwards, who had introduced him to Velma. Now, Detective Phillips wondered what to make of this caller. Deranged? Holding a grudge? Was she really Velma's sister? While he looked into the deaths that had occurred over the weekend and heard about Stuart Taylor's passing, Detective Phillips called the pathology department. Would there be an autopsy? Bob Andrews, the regional medical examiner for like the last 20 years, had already done one. If wrongdoing was revealed, though, the sheriff's department had jurisdiction, so Phillips called Detective Wilbur Lovett to give him a heads up. Puzzled, Dr. Andrews couldn't find a cause of death, just severe gastritis. This wouldn't kill a man in good health, as Stewart had been. But examining a bit of tissue that he'd saved, Dr. Andrews noticed an abnormality, so he sent tissue samples off to the North Carolina chief medical examiner, Dr. Paige Hudson. As Dr. Andrews explained Stewart's hospitalization and symptoms, Dr. Hudson asked, quote, where did she get the arsenic, Bob? End quote, referring to Velma. Jerry Bledsoe writes, quote, the use of arsenic as a murder weapon was more common in the South than in any other part of the country, Hudson had learned, and probably more common in North Carolina than any other state. Sixteen arsenic deaths, mostly homicides and suicides, had occurred in the state just since 1971 when records began being kept, end quote. In North Carolina, probably elsewhere too, arsenic is used to control pests, with one company supplying the bulk. Red B. Singletary rat poison, a clear, odorless, and tasteless liquid with trioxide, the most deadliest form. The law required anybody purchasing rat poison to sign for it, 
but no ID was required. Taro, an ant poison containing arsenic, wasn't regulated at all. And they did determine the cause of death for Stuart Taylor. Lethal amounts of arsenic were in the tissue samples. Stuart Taylor was murdered. DA Joe Freeman Britt had never prosecuted a poisoner. Dr. Hudson told the TA how torturous a death by arsenic was, painfully gruesome to watch. And he added, quote, One thing to keep in mind, in perhaps half the cases of arsenic murders he'd examined, the killer had done it before. And that pattern and the ease with which arsenic murders escaped detection left him with little doubt that many of them would do it again, end quote. Chomping on a cigar as he paced in his office, Britt decided to go over and see Robeson County Sheriff Malcolm McLeod, who had summoned his homicide detectives, Wilbur Lovett and Alf Parnell. Lovett suspected something was hinky in Stuart Taylor's death, and his suspect was Velma Barfield. Filling them in on the mysterious sister's call, they realized Velma may have killed her mother and a couple of elderly folks that she'd worked for. Alf Parnell was totally blown away. He'd known Velma her whole life, and Stuart Taylor, too. He knew Velma's first husband died in a fire, and that Velma married some older man, Jennings Barfield. Parnell knew Velma had worked for John Henry Lee, and was the officer called to the Lee home about the forged checks, and Parnell had suspected Velma. But the Lees refused to hear it. Velma was a good Christian lady. Wilbur Lovett knew the other elderly couple, Montgomery and Dolly Edwards, who are both dead now. And Stuart Taylor's son-in-law, Bill Storms, worked down with Alf and Wilbur at the courthouse as they discussed how to proceed with this investigation. And not one of them realized that this would become the biggest case in Robeson County history, possibly North Carolina's to date. They collected death certificates, Stuart's, Lily Bullard's, the Edwards, and Lee's. The cause of death for all of them was gastroenteritis. Hmm. They knew about Velma's incarceration for bad checks and forgery, with seven charges still outstanding against her. Remember, she was working at United Care, a local nursing home, and was now living with an elderly woman, Mamie Warwick. All of these folks could be in acute danger. So they decided to bring Velma in on the bad check charges, rattle her, and see if she confessed. Later, Velma would say, when Detective Benson Phillips woke her from a sound sleep knocking on her door, she downed two Valiums, two Tylenol with, with codeine, anti-anxiety meds, antidepressants, and sedatives. Phillips, however, did not note that she was under the influence when he interviewed her. On hearing that Stewart had died of arsenic poisoning, Velma seemed shocked, breaking into tears. Quote, Y'all think I poisoned Stuart, don't you? End quote. Then when a bite in her voice, she asked, quote, What would I have to gain by poisoning him? I was going to marry him. End quote. She nursed him when he was sick. Had anyone else been with him during that time? Detective Phillips asked. No, no, said Velma, vehemently denying any involvement. Would she take a lie detector test? Velma said yes. And Phillips, while taking the shaken woman home, would say, quote, Velma, you know, this can go all the way back to your mother, end quote. They knew about the other victims. Giving him a sharp look, she turned away and went inside Mamie's. Bill and Alice Storms were told that Stewart's death was a homicide and that he'd been poisoned. Shocked, crying, Alice croaked, quote, who in heaven's name would have given it to him, end quote. Learning Velma Barfield was their suspect, an enraged Alice told them how Stuart had died, the checks Velma forged, Stuart discovering Velma had been in prison, and their cycle of fighting and breaking up, that she'd been so kind and supportive, caring for him, and then later again at the funeral. And now Velma kept calling Alice, asking about the autopsy, reminiscing on how Stuart had been so good and how much she missed him. Oh my God, as the depth of this hit Alice. Asked to keep the investigation to themselves, Bill and Alice agreed. 
and Velma called Alice later that very afternoon, admitting the police had questioned her about the arsenic, indignant that they could think she would do something like that to Stuart, who she cared for and loved. Velma told her that the police were covering up some snafu at the hospital, and she didn't appreciate it one bit. Alice nearly chewed her lip off, keeping quiet. Then, in Stuart's banking, Alice found a $300 check made out to Velma, clearly a forgery, dated January 31st, the very day Stuart fell ill. She had cashed it the day before his death, and this was motive for murder. As Wilbur Lovett was looking into this at the bank, he got the call from Ronnie Burke that he was bringing in his mother. And that is how Velma Barfield came to be arrested for the premeditated murder of fiancé Stuart Taylor, a capital crime. Bob Jacobson was one of the few Lumberton attorneys who was qualified to try capital cases. Velma looked like death warmed over, appearing before Judge Charles McLean. See what I did there? (laughs) Gotta keep that ghoulish sense of humor. She had already had her psyche valve at the Dorothea Dix Hospital, a standard practice. Bob Jacobson recalls a rambling Velma saying, quote, she hadn't meant to kill them. She only meant to make them sick. And then, ooh, them? End quote. But Bob, who's, who's them? And Velma's confession to killing four people now made Bob's job very, very difficult. While Velma was writhing in agony from withdrawal and depression, the press was running crazy. Britt went before Superior Court Judge Maurice Braswell to sign exhumation orders. Soon, backhoes, shovels, and hearses were at work, with Dr. Hudson examining the remains of Lily Bullard, Dolly Edwards, and John Henry Lee. Ronnie was beating himself up. How had he not seen? How could she fool him so completely? Could he have intervened earlier and saved some lives? Kim was devastated. Mom killed Grandma, such a gentle, loving woman? And then her husband reminded Kim about three weeks ago when Velma was staying with them. Kim had come home, meeting a stressed and jittery Velma who wanted to borrow the car. Kim knew she was going to go out and get pills, so she offered to drive her. Indignant, huffing, Velma refused and stalked off to sulk. She and Dennis both got sick afterwards with severe cramps and stomach pains, vomiting and diarrhea. They had both gone to the emergency room. Remember the tea? Dennis reminded Kim. Oh my God, it hadn't been the flu. Now Kim agonized, quote, How do you forgive a mother who attempts to kill you for no greater reason than petty spite? End quote. While moving his mother's things out of Mamie's house, Ronnie found dozens upon dozens of pill vials and turned them over to Bob. This helped convince Kim and Ronnie that the drugs were at the root of the evil Velma had unleashed. Velma's brothers and sisters also struggled with anger, horror, and the bonds that tied them to her. All right, for the record, I do not think this is about drugs. Drugs definitely impact you. They do terrible things to you, but they do not turn you into a calculating, manipulative, homicidal maniac. Uh, no, not buying it. Mm-mm. Remember, death by poison, especially arsenic, is a drawn-out process. This is not like you accidentally pick up a gun and shot somebody. All right, so on March 26, the grand jury indicted Velma for a single count of murder. Released from the psychiatric wing, Velma pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Jacobson asked for a change of venue, with the judge agreeing, setting the trial in Laurenburg in the adjoining county. Now, back in his law school days, John Freeman Britt opposed the death penalty. Maturing, quote, in seven years, he had tried criminal acts too horrendous to believe. He encountered people so vicious, so evil, so utterly irredeemable that he had become convinced that society had no other choice but to eliminate them. To do otherwise was to ensure that some other innocent person would suffer down the road, end quote. At this time, under North Carolina law, juries had the right to recommend mercy in capital cases, and they did. Plea deals became essential to moving justice along. 
Britt knew that killers were sent to prison, vowing to renew killing when they were released. And families lived in terror that one day a killer would get out and feared that they were next. Now, at the age of 39, Britt, the man who would become the world's deadliest prosecutor, decided that he would do something to help these people. When a first-degree murder case comes along, Britt takes it and goes for the death penalty. No plea bargains allowed. Aware of racial inequity in the prosecution of capital crimes, Britt would see this end on his watch. A victim's rights were the same no matter what race or class. But in 1972, the Supreme Court ruled in a 5-4 vote that capital punishment was, quote, so wantonly and freakishly imposed, it violated the prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment, end quote. 600-plus convicted felons received a mass stay of execution. A Raleigh News and Observer headline read, Capital Punishment is Now Dead. All right, that's pretty good. They did, they did good. That was clever. Why opponents of the death penalty were thrilled, grassroots support for the death penalty existed, and they pressed for a new law. 34 states reinstated the death penalty, ensuring more equitable enforcement. Passed in 1974, North Carolina's new law, quote, chose to make the death penalty mandatory for persons convicted of certain crimes. A wide range of killings, as well as the rape of children and rapes committed in the course of other felonies, end quote. Over the next 17 months, Britt would prosecute and win 13 first-degree murder cases, a national record. Now, he had his detractors, because we are opinionated Americans who love to disagree on virtually everything. A defense attorney described being in court with Britt, quote, you get your ass kicked so much you don't want to go back for more, end quote. But then came the reversal. In 1976, the Supreme Court ruled that mandatory death sentences were unconstitutional. So the 120 people on death row in North Carolina rejoiced over their new life sentences. Nevertheless, the court also affirmed that it was not outlawing the death penalty, upholding Georgia, Florida, and Texas, who broke death penalty cases into two trials, one determining guilt and then determining sentence. To be tried as a capital case, aggravating circumstances had to be met, such as it being a particularly gruesome murder. Once found guilty, penalty phase began, which weighs the aggravated circumstances versus mitigating circumstances, such as impairment or being under duress or mentally disturbed or no prior criminal record or drugged out of your mind. And this is largely how death penalty cases are conducted in the United States now. So North Carolina's new, new capital punishment law went into effect on June 1st, 1977. Criminologist Frank Schmallinger was hired to do a study to see if the death penalty was a deterrent. Published in Carolinian Politics in 1978, the murder rates in Robeson County plummeted dramatically during Britt's first two years in office, while it climbed in adjoining Cumberland County. Schmallinger concluded, quote, the certainty of facing a death penalty was deterring murder in Robeson County, end quote. But the data was actually skewed as no one realized that Lily Bullard, Velma's mother, had been murdered. Before Judge Henry McKinnon charged with killing Stuart Taylor, Velma Barfield looked haggard, pale, and ill-fitting clothes acquired from a church donation bin. But the family was there for support. Ronnie and Kim had accepted that Velma would never, ever leave prison. A female and a grandmother, defense attorney Bob Jacobson, didn't believe that Velma would be sent to the gas chamber. It was just unheard of, even facing a prosecutor like Britt. With his legal philosophy, Britt did not buy into the whole jury consultant thing, calling it courtroom voodoo. And this jury pool was composed of earthy people from a rural, small-town area. Britt's most important query was, how do you feel about the death penalty? And those adamantly opposed were dismissed. Jacobson and Britt wound up with seven men, five women, nine black, nine white, three black. 
Two alternatives were selected, both white, a man and a woman. They were waitresses, retired Navy flight engineers, timber buyers, a secretary, factory workers, a Forest Service employee, a National Guardsman. So you're talking a real, real cross-section of the population. Now, while most attorneys place a lot of value on opening statements, Britt did not. He did not want to telegraph where he was going or waste any of his story. So he declined, and Jacobson followed suit. Britt called Stewart's son, Billy Taylor, who described his dad's agonizing medical condition in the emergency room. Stewart couldn't stay still, couldn't sit up, lay down, was holding his stomach in pain. Dr. Jones, the emergency room physician, was up next, explaining that Stewart was dehydrated and he had thought he had gastritis. How many poisoning cases had Dr. Jones treated? Was well, probably over a hundred, he replied. Had anything tipped him off that this was unusual? No, no, not really. Jacobson was next, asking about Dr. Jones's familiarity with Valium, a tranquilizer that sedates. He was, and Jacobson went into the Valium and the numerous other medications Velma was abusing. Jacobson would repeat this line of questioning, pounding the fact that Velma was heavily medicated to every doctor who would testify, and there were a lot of doctors testifying. I am not going to get into every single one with the same kind of line of questioning. They all have a little bit different perspective, and I would still read the book. It is really very, very well done. Dr. Larson, who also treated Stewart, had treated hundreds of poisoning cases over 36 years. If he had known it was arsenic, he'd have given Stewart BAL, British Anti-Lewisite, which, had it been administered the day prior, might have saved Stewart's life. Britt asked a Dr. Joe Alexander, a physician with over 25 years' experience, about this British anti-lewisite, which counteracts poisons like arsenic. How much lead time did a doctor need to counter potentially terminal arsenic poisoning? Alexander explained that arsenic can kill in 6 to 48 hours, so it was best to begin as soon as possible, as soon as suspected. Jacobson crossed the doctor, who recited again the numerous medications that Velma was taking, all potent tranquilizers, painkillers, plus Malax and the Valium, with Velma refilling them also. Was he aware that she was seeing other doctors rattling off a list of names? No, he was not. Would he have refilled his prescriptions if he knew about the other doctors? No, he would not. So Dr. Richard Jordan, who had treated Velma in the past, confirmed the symptoms of arsenic poisoning, vomiting, diarrhea, severe abdominal pains, restlessness, mental confusion. He said Velma appeared to be grieving at the hospital. And then the pathologist who did the autopsy testified. Unable to identify cause of death, he had sent the tissue samples from Stewart's organs out for testing and uncovered the high concentrations of arsenic, the cause of death. Jacobson had a fit when Britt called Margie Lee Pittman to the stand, the daughter of John Henry Lee, as the judge ordered the jury to be removed. Her testimony is irrelevant to this trial, but Britt explained that he could conclusively prove that Velma had murdered John Henry Lee with arsenic, same symptoms, and the motive tied to checks that Velma had written on Mrs. Lee's account, establishing Velma's modus operandi. The revelation was that Record Lee had also fallen ill, and samples taken from her showed arsenic in her hair and fingernails. He'd absolutely proved that Velma killed her mother, Lily, and Dolly Edwards, and Jennings Barfield, although he conceded that the Barfield evidence was circumstantial. He cited a 1938 precedent. A man had tried to give strychnine to his daughter to collect life insurance. In this case, the state was permitted to present evidence that he had previously murdered his two wives for insurance money, and this was later upheld in higher courts. So now Britt is presenting the same circumstances. Velma confessed to trying to make Stewart sick, and for that reason, the state needed to show these other killings as intent, which is a factor in determining between first and second degree murder. Further, 
Velma had pled not guilty by reason of insanity, resting on the notion that she didn't know what she was doing. Quote, I want to be in a position to show that she did very well know the nature of her act. As a matter of fact, she probably knew more about arsenic poisoning than most physicians. The law is clear, end quote. Well, Britt wins. On the stand, Margie Lee Pittman told the jury about how she hired Velma and how her parents had become ill. Of John Henry Lee, she said, quote, I stood over him when he was on the potty chair because he was too weak to go to the bathroom. I wiped his head from sweat pouring out all over him. He would groan, and if you had been in the yard, you would have heard him. It was so hard, end quote. Upset at this time, Margie had said to Velma, quote, Daddy is dying. Daddy is dying, end quote. In the ICU, John Henry Lee passed away. Britt also showed her some checks, signed Record B. Lee. Was this her mother's signature? No, said Margie, it is not. Frida Monroe, another daughter of John Henry Lee's, testified. At the hospital, Velma told her, quote, Frida, I do not believe your daddy will go home alive. I've seen it happen too many times, end quote. Ouch. Weldon Jordan, Lily Bullard's doctor, stated under oath that he had been puzzled by Lily's death. He had asked Velma for permission for an autopsy, which she had granted. He was followed by the loan manager with commercial credit in Lumberton, who testified that Velma took out a loan in the name of Lily Bullard for $1,048 on November 12, 1974. No payments were ever made, and a delinquency note was sent to Lily on December 27th, four days before her death. Lily had commented about it during their Christmas celebrations, the last of her life. Ultimately, the life insurance repaid the loan. Trial Day 4. Jennings Barfield's daughter, Ellen Mintz, told the jury of being summoned to the hospital and arriving to learn that her dad had died. Velma assured Ellen that she had stayed with Jennings, that she'd done everything she could for him, and she should not feel badly about not being there when he died. He must have caught some stomach flu. William Hamilton, a Duke University pathologist who performed the second autopsies on Lily Bullard and Jennings Barfield, testified as to their deaths by arsenic poisoning. The state medical examiner, Dr. Hudson, was back, and he confirmed that John Henry Lee and Dolly Edwards also died of arsenic poisoning. Dr. Hudson would later testify that tarot, singletary poisons were quite lethal. Britt asked him, since arsenic gradually builds up in the body, is it possible to recover? Quote, one can certainly recover from it. I've had experience with several non-fatal cases, end quote. Okay, my observation. I think it's going poorly for Mr. Jacobson. What are you thinking, murder bookies? Yeah, he's having a rough, a rough go of it here. Well, then he next tried to strike Velma's confession with the jury dismissed once again. Judge McKinnon listened as Sergeant Wilbur Lovett described his interviews with Velma, plus the four statements that she had signed. Being assured that Velma had not been promised anything, Jacobson called Velma to give her version of the interviews. Jacobson maintained that Velma was making statements under the influence of drugs and could not possibly understand her rights, asking that they not be admitted. The motion was denied and the jury would hear about her confessions. Tension in the courtroom was thick as spectators leaned forward into Wilbert Lovett's testimony about Velma's confessions. He identified the brown bottle of Singletary's rat poison found in a field behind Dolly Edwards' house, exactly where Velma had told him she'd thrown it. A bottle of tarot ant poison was also entered into evidence, purchased by Velma, kept at Stewart's house. Alf Parnell told the jury that initially, Velma emphatically denied poisoning Stewart or forging checks on his account. But she changed her story after three days coming into the station with her son, Ronnie. Quote, she said that she just intended to make him sick, that she didn't intend to kill him. Asked what she said about the other cases, Parnell replied, she said in each of them, she knew what the results would be. She said she knew what she poisoned them with that had resulted in death before. 
end quote. Utterly devastating testimony. Psychiatric testimony began with Bob Jacobson calling Dr. Arthur Douglas, who did an independent evaluation of Velma. Douglas interviewed her in May during a time when she had been taken back and forth to the hospital several times for headaches and nausea. She recounted many years of suffering from anxiety, depression, insomnia, headaches, blaming all of it on her husband's drinking. She admitted giving Stuart Taylor poison. They had been arguing, he had been drinking, and threatened her. She thought it would make him sick, but not kill him. Velma suffered from a passive dependent personality disorder which makes it difficult to cope well with stress. Frequently, those with this disorder abuse drugs. Britt countered, asking if Velma was mentally ill. No, no, she's not. Britt read from Dr. Douglas's report, quote, No evidence of illusion or hallucinations. Memory is intact. Her judgment is immature. Intellectual function at least average. This patient is considered competent to stand trial. End quote. Dr. R. E. Hooks, who Velma had been seeing since 1966, testified that he'd seen her about three and a half months before Stewart's death. He had prescribed five milligrams of Valium four times a day, no refills. Velma would return monthly, and he would write her a new prescription, always writing no refills. Well, why did he do that? Well, Dr. Hooks was rationing the Valium. Did he know that Velma was seeing more than one doctor? Well, he was led to believe that she was not. If Dr. Hooks had known Velma was taking sedatives, antidepressants, sleeping pills, and tranquilizers, would he have prescribed Valium? No, sir, was the curt response. All right, this is rare and this is risky. And we saw this in the Alex Murdoch murder trial. Bob Jacobson felt they had no other chance and he called Velma Barfield to take the stand, hoping to save her life. They had two shots. Get her convicted for second-degree murder, not first. Recall, the motive of intent is necessary factor in determining first-degree murder, and Velma insisted she never intended to kill. Second-degree murder meant a life sentence. Second, convinced the jury that Velma's drug use left her unable to comprehend that she was committing a crime. And even if that failed, it was still a very strong mitigating element for the sentencing phase. Bob believed that only Velma could convince the jury and explain her reasoning, however absurd. There was a serious downside, however. Velma had been argumentative, uncooperative, and snippy from the get-go. It would be imperative to hide that side of her when testifying, and Jacobson was not sure she could pull it off. Ronnie spoke to Velma about this, trying to make her understand the seriousness and how much rested on this. But Velma didn't like Jacobson. Quote, and Ronnie stressed, control her anger, be remorseful and polite, answer only what was asked, and keep her hands in her lap. Look grandmotherly, and if she felt like crying, End quote. On the stand, Velma appeared calm while terrified inside. With Jacobson guiding her, she reviewed when she met Stuart and their history, with Velma being soft-spoken but gaining confidence as she went on. The weekend before his death, he had been drinking and they had argued. When she threatened to leave, he'd said he'd put the law on her for forging his checks. Going to pick up a prescription, she bought the tarot while Stuart was off looking at tackle gear. About 3.30 p.m. Tuesday, when Stuart was in the bathroom, she put some taro in his drink, and at dinner about 6 p.m., she put it in his tea. Together, they went to the revival meeting, where he got sick. He stayed sick all Wednesday. Thursday, Velma called the ambulance when he couldn't sit up. Question, had she told the hospital personnel what she had done? No, because she was afraid of what they might do to her. Velma told the jury. And the day he died, Stuart was feeling better in the morning, but diarrhea and vomiting resumed in the afternoon. At 7 p.m., he fell out of bed with Velma coming to his aid. When he got worse, the rescue squad was called, and at the hospital they did their best, but Stuart Taylor would die later that night. About John Henry Lee, Velma said, quote, 
I don't remember very much about it. I had written a check on him, and I had put some roach poison in some cereal and coffee, end quote. She forged the check to buy some medication. Well, why had she poisoned Stuart? Well, the same thing, she replied. When asked about Dolly Edwards, Velma explained that she had put some poison in her cereal and coffee, but couldn't really explain why. I mean, there was nothing really between them. It had to be the drugs, but she denied forging Dolly's check. When they turned to Billy Bullard, Velma's mother, quote, I did not realize my mother would die. I have never intended to kill anyone, end quote. What about her second husband, Jennings Barfield? She denied any memory of poisoning him. With regard to her interview and confession, Velma didn't recall being read her rights. She did remember Sergeant Lovett saying, quote, it will make it easier on you. Tell me everything you know, end quote. And Velma had. When asked if she'd ever forged a prescription, Velma confirmed that she had and did time in prison for it. So at this point, Bob Jacobson had hit all the points he wanted Velma to make. She had been earnest, soft-spoken, and sincere. Half over, it was now Britt's turn. Prosecutor Britt wanted to trigger Velma's anger, and after reading her psyche vow, he believed he knew exactly how to do it. Passive aggression. When confronted or threatened, Velma got angry, and the jurors needed to see aggression, hostility, not a demure grandma. Indignant, Britt said sharply, So you can't recall poisoning your second husband, Jennings Barfield? She answered, No, sir, I do not. Had she bought poison in 1971? No, the first time was right before her mother died. When? Britt pressed. Well, the, the day she died, Velma responded. Their verbal combat had begun. What type of poison was that? Well, it was Singletary's. And thereafter, you switched to Charo Ant poison, did you not? Yes, later I did. Did you ever give any poison to Record Lee? No, I did not. Velma's responses were growing sharper. Britt's tone and the hard, fast questioning was beginning to get her. End quote. When she asked, the judge confirmed that Velma could make a statement. Oh, God, she's going off script. Quote, when one of our loved ones, friends, whatever, dies, and they ask for an autopsy to be performed, is it not true that we have an autopsy performed to find out the reason for death? I don't believe it killed them, really. Velma went on emphatically. That is exactly the way I feel about it. She stared at Britt with an air of smugness. Britt was astonished. I beg your pardon? And Velma elaborated. I don't think it killed them. End quote. Oof. Britt asked, hadn't she heard multiple doctors' testimonies in this courtroom? His voice was bristling. Yes, but she insisted poison hadn't killed them. So instead of seeing remorse, the jury is hearing a denial of responsibility. Oh, boy. And remember, back she had been telling Alice the hospital screwed up, that the police were covering up something, diverting attention from her culpability for this. While watching this spectacle, Ronnie was just aghast. His mom's anger brewing, her eyes flinty as steel, and he slumped with Jacobson cringing. This was the opposite of what they had both counseled. Velma sharply told Britt that she'd never objected to a single autopsy. Practically shouting, Britt accused, quote, That's right, and the reason you didn't object is because the first time there was an autopsy performed, you slipped by. You thought they couldn't pick up arsenic poisoning in an autopsy. Isn't that correct? No, indeed it is not, said the angry Velma, crossing her arms defiantly and chewing gum, end quote. It went downhill rapidly. Velma admitted to watching Stewart's agony the night he passed away, never saying a word to anyone about poisoning him. She admitted giving poison to Mr. Lee. She blamed her drug addiction for poisoning Mrs. Edwards. Quote, you made Mrs. Edwards sick, that singletary rat poison, did you not? No, it was rodent and ant poison, said Velma with a look of satisfaction, as if she'd scored against Brit. So you knew these compounds would certainly make people sick. I knew it would make them sick. And you knew it would kill them too, didn't you? No, I didn't. 
Did you tell Frieda Monroe at the hospital? You needn't look for recovery of Mr. Lee because I've been through this before and I know they don't recover. I did make that statement and I had stood by a lot of people that died, end quote. Ronnie couldn't even look up. His mother was destroying herself. Brett got deeper into the issue of the checks. The $300 check she'd forged on Stewart's account. She cashed it Friday, the day he died. Quote, so it wasn't true when you told the officers that you killed him because you were afraid he was going to have you arrested for cashing a forged check, was it? End quote. Caught off guard? Loma paused but finally agreed. She'd written the check on the day she put poison in his food. Quote, and kept it while he suffered for three days, Britt thundered. Objection! Jacobson was on his feet, with the judge sustaining only the volume of Britt's voice. Quote, and in Mr. Lee's case, you wrote the check on Record Lee's account. Well, yes, I did. They caught up with you, didn't they? Velma denied it. Then why did you put poison in his food? I thought he would find out, end quote. Making him sick would give her time to pay the money back. Britt asked about the loan Velma got six weeks before her mother's death. She knew Lily received a past-due notice, and she'd made her sick, hoping her mother would be in the hospital, afraid she would find out, and hoping that she could get the money to pay it back to her, which really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Listen, her modus operandi is very, very clear to me. What about you, murder bookies? He switched topics. Did Velma know Taro and Singletary were both tasteless? Yes, yes, she did. Brick now implied that this was because Jennings Barfield never complained, trying to trap Velma. She interrupted, quote, I didn't put anything in Jennings Barfield at all, end quote. All the contempt she had for Brick on display. Brick repeated, his voice rising, quote, You are now saying, that you did not at any time give Jennings Barfield any poison. That's what I'm saying. All right. Thank you, ma'am. I believe originally you said you couldn't remember. You didn't remember. End quote. Velma was combative, angry, shrewish, all attributes of a cold, calculated murderess. She had no remorse. She denied being the cause of death. She was callous mean, as if she didn't care at all that all of these people were dead. Challenging Velma afterwards, Ronnie was pissed. Velma retorted, quote, well, he's the one that started it. He was yelling at me. No one's going to yell at me like that, end quote. Exasperated, Ronnie knew Velma had put herself on death row. Bob Jacobson knew that Velma had blown it too. Second degree murder was ruined, but maybe the drug abuse could still work. He called Dr. Bob Rollins, a forensic psychiatrist who had once been the superintendent of Dorothea Dix Hospital, where Velma had been for six weeks before her arrest. Was Velma capable of telling right from wrong? Was she responsible for her actions? Dr. Rollins confirmed that she was. Dr. Anthony Sains, a neurologist, had given his testimony from his hospice bed to the judge, lawyers, and the court clerk which I hadn't really known was a thing. His testimony was read to the jury by the court clerk. Treating Velma in 1975 until the trial, he also confirmed her drug abuse and said that Velma was a person, quote, who abused medicine without just motive. Her depression was organic, a disease of the body that affected the mind, leaving no initiative and an inability to cope. She was unable to establish an equilibrium between being hostile to her environment or becoming dependent on it. In other words, she's either a parasite or a destructor, end quote. And this is a defense witness describing her as a destructor. Oh my God. Wow. Ronnie testified for Velma, outlining her many overdoses since his father's death in 1969 and taking drugs away from her the day she was arrested, Jacobson produced the grocery bag of medication vials that Ronnie collected from Velma's room, admitting them into evidence. Brent asked Ronnie how his dad died. Well, from smoke inhalation, Ronnie said. 
Now, Britt had had Thomas Burke exhumed, but found no arsenic in him, only heavy soot in his lungs and trachea. Had Velma been outside the home's door when the fire occurred? Well, Ronnie didn't know where she'd been. Sounds to me like Britt is trying to say that Velma started the fire. Had she killed Ronnie and Kim's father? Remember, there were three fires in two and a half years. Had she committed arson, too? Jacobson called a slew of doctors and pharmacists, all discussing Velma's prescriptions that they had filled in December and January before the murders, at least 13. All right, we, we get it. All right, she's an off-the-chart addict. We got it. But then, horrified, Jacobson realized he had forgotten to ask Velma an important question. Oh, Lord, and he's going to have to recall her to the stand, risking another go-round between her and Britt. Back on the stand, Jacobson asked Velma how many medications she had taken the day she poisoned Stuart. Three sedatives, three antidepressants, six Valiums, four anti-anxiety, all about 11.30 a.m. They were really trying to convince the jury that she was incapable of knowing what she was doing when she poisoned Stuart. Now Velma added that she'd been to see Dr. Baker that day, though she was confused about the time. And Britt taunted her that she'd left Stuart alone, as sick as he was, and Ronnie saw her blood boiling again. Britt returned to the day she cashed Stuart's forged check. Had she explained that she'd made him sick so she could cash it and get the money and pay it back before he got well? Yes. Wait, but wasn't he feeling better on the day she cashed it? Wasn't she afraid he'd catch on? No, she denied. Britt accused her of knowing Stuart was doomed, that she could cash it regardless. Anger flashing, Velma insisted no. When she filled her prescriptions in Lumberton, wasn't Stuart sick again within four hours and back in the hospital for the final day of his life? Well, she said that when she returned, he was still feeling better. So Britt asked, well, then when did he grow sick again? Velma said around 7 p.m. Had he eaten oyster stew at that time that she'd fixed for him? Yes. And as soon as he ate the oyster stew, he then started getting sick again, didn't he? Velma insisted, sir, he did not. Nevertheless, she took Stuart to the hospital about 8.30 p.m. that evening. Ronnie thought that Velma looked like she might spring out of the chair and strangle Britt where he was standing. She wasn't any more sympathetic than she had been the day before, loathing Britt so much she just couldn't contain it, and the defense rested. The judge ruled that not guilty by reason of insanity would not be presented as an option to the jury. All of the mental health professionals all testified that Velma wasn't insane and knew right from wrong. Only first-degree and second-degree murder would be the focus of their deliberations, and he would allow that self-intoxication might negate intent. Jacobson's closing argument admitted Velma had put poison in Stuart Taylor's beer and tea. However, the state had failed to prove Velma Barfield intended to kill him, a requirement for first-degree murder. Jacobson elaborated on using the evidence to determine if she had an ability to form an intent to kill, and then whether she was too intoxicated to understand what she was doing, making intent impossible. Britt was next. Whirling, he pointed a finger at Velma. Quote, there's no doubt whatsoever that this woman is guilty of murder in the first degree. End quote. To answer the question of intent, Britt brought the other poisoning cases into evidence. Totally paraphrasing now. This is the gist of Britt's argument. This trial was only about Stuart Taylor's death, but the other cases prove Velma Barfield had full knowledge and knew exactly what she was doing when she put poison in the beer and tea. Six months earlier, she did the same thing to John Henry Lee, and before that to Dolly Edwards, and then her own mother, Lily. A person of ordinary intelligence doesn't do this over and over without knowing what the outcome was. 
There are all kinds of people out there with disease, mental, physical, all kinds of issues, and they don't poison those around them. A tarot can has a little skull and crossbones. She knows what that means. She magnificently deceived those around the victims, consoling, pretending to care, while watching Stuart die in agony and never said a thing to save him. The British anti-Lewis site could have saved him. She intended to kill him, and she did. He asked the jury to bring in a guilty of first-degree murder verdict. With a smirk on her face, Velma raised her hands and gave him a silent applause. None of the jury could have missed it. Absolutely unbelievable. Her inability to separate her immediate needs and wants for a second and control herself is incredible. It is all about Velma. It is not about what this might do to her kids, her sisters, the rest of the family. She is a right fighter. She has to be right even if she gets herself killed. Jury foreman Ronald Tutton, who is an auditor with the North Carolina Department of Revenue, began by assuring all the jurors that they would all reach their own conclusions. But to his surprise, the jury was already in agreement. They did not believe that Velma was so drugged she didn't recognize giving Stuart poison would kill him. Her explanation was just absurd. Intent was already firmly established in the mind of the jurors because Velma might have saved Stuart's life if she told the doctors about the arsenic when he first got to the hospital. She did not. Clearly, she wanted him to die. They took a secret ballot, and Ronnie Tutton read the results. Unanimously, first-degree murder. But this was too important not to discuss, so they needed to be absolutely satisfied. Discussion and voting continued again and again, and nothing altered. Guilty of first-degree murder. They had deliberated for 100 minutes. Before Judge McKinnon, they found Velma Barfield guilty of intending to murder Stuart Taylor. Velma showed no emotion. So now she can control herself, huh? Poor Ronnie, Kim, and Jacobson. The penalty phase of the trial came next, and Jacobson had one more shot at saving Velma's life. He called her old friend, Diane Hayes, who said Velma was a happy person until husband Thomas Burke began drinking. After his death, Velma relied on tranquilizers, slurring, and became very shaky. Kim was also called to the stand, re-emphasizing her mother's extensive use of drugs, and Ronnie also testified about his concerns, speaking to her doctors about not prescribing her more medication. Britt now spoke to the 12 members of the jury in lulling tones about Stuart, 56 years old, who was living and breathing on January 31st and planned to be doing so on February 3rd, but had his life stolen from him. Gone forever. Velma Barfield killed him. Brick got more passionate, highlighting the pain that Stewart suffered as an indifferent Velma watched. She did all this for money for drugs. Quote, it goes back to dope, dope, and more dope, more forgeries, more covering up, more poisonings, end quote, as she nursed the dying and the sick. He hearkened Velma not to Florence Nightingale nursing him through his illness but a cold, calculating Lucretia Borgia. All right, that is just genius. Well played, Brit. I am impressed. The judge then instructed the jurors on their deliberations, and the wait game began. Foreman Tutton felt the gravity of the decision that he and the other jurors faced. This time, they began with a minute of silent prayer. A woman's life was at stake. The verdict sheet had four questions. One, did aggravating circumstances exist? Two, did mitigating circumstances exist? Three, did mitigating circumstances outweigh the aggravating? And four, were the aggravating circumstances sufficient for the death penalty? The jury discussed each, ensuring everyone understood all the legal terminology. In a secret ballot, all four questions would be responded to. Reviewing the responses, 
Tutton realized they were all identical once again. Again, feeling the responsibility to make sure that anyone with reservations had a chance to express them, they discussed and voted again and again and again. At 5.30 p.m., three hours into deliberations, word came of a verdict, and the judge warned everyone to refrain from any visible or audible outburst. Reading from the jury sheet, Judge McKinnon read that the jury found all the aggravating circumstances existed, but found against the mitigating circumstances, Thelma's drug intoxication. They found that the mitigating circumstances were insufficient to outweigh the aggravating, and the aggravating circumstances were sufficient. Quote, we, the jury, unanimously recommend to the court that the punishment for defendant Margie Bullard Barfield be the death penalty, end quote. Kim sobbed, Ronnie slumped, and Velma stood silent, expressing nothing. After polling the jury, the judge thanked them for their service. Speaking to Velma, he set the date for her execution as February 1st, 1979, which happened to be Ronnie's sixth wedding anniversary. Ronnie approached prosecutor Joe Freeman Britt, quote, I know you were just doing your job. I and my family don't hate you for it, end quote. A totally drained Brit responded, I wouldn't want anyone to hate me. And the two men shook hands. Wow. I remember when courtesy and decency like this existed, mutual respect from two people on widely diverse sides of an issue. It's called common decency. And that is how it's supposed to be. And this concludes episode 64, Poisoning the Watering Hole, on Death Sentence, The True Story of Velma Barfield's Life, Crimes, and Execution by Jerry Bledsoe. In our next episode 65, we will deep dive into the defense's efforts to save Velma Barfield's life and the juxtaposition of those seeking justice for her victims, especially the families. The human element remains heartbreaking. And what a different kind of serial killer story. Thank you for listening, Murder Bookies. And please leave a five-star review wherever you listen. And remember, I'm on Patreon. That first Zoom was so much fun. It was great fun to see you and chat with you and hear your ideas on our cases. And I'm kicking around some new book ideas. And our next book is Solving the West Georgia Murder of Gwendolyn Moore, A Cry from the Well by Clay Bryant. And this also includes Chief Bryant's newly released book, The Cold Case Murder of Fred Wilkerson, Untangling the Black Widow's Web in West Georgia. The stories intersect, so we just have to do both. Uh, Clay Bryant is an investigator and has a remarkable personal story, which makes all of the cases he solved all the more fascinating. So be ready for my first twofer. Email me at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. Check out the warm weather merch on Spreadshop with some cute designs ready for the barbecue. Find the link on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com where you can find my sources, show notes, photographs, recipe and drink information. And I am on Facebook and Twitter too. Lock your doors and your windows and trust your gut, murder bookies. I see you as you hear me. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosena and lyrics by Otto Harbaugh.